Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I'll be brief so as to allow as much time as possible for today's eloquent and insightful guest for Spirit in Action. We've got the number one progressive talk show host here today, and Tom Hartman, and I will be talking about his latest book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. I've had him here twice before, and I can't wait even five more seconds to talk to him today. So let's go straight to California via Zoom to again talk with Tom Hartman. Tom, welcome back to Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. Great to be here. When I last talked to you, you mentioned that you already had the book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, already well in progress. But, and you say this in the first chapter, your intro to the book, that you had to send it to the printer before the election. That must have been unnerving to send this one with the warnings about tyranny and all. Send it to the printer before the election happened. It was. And I begged them and they were like, no, you don't understand. (laughs) There are schedules and books have to be published and boxes need to be shipped. So that was what I had to deal with. But it looks like things are going to turn out okay. How did you feel when you saw the actual election results coming in and, you know, the fact that Trump wasn't conceding and your feelings about oligarchy and tyranny? I mean, (laughs) what just happened recently at the nation's capital must have been like, no, I was talking about it in this book. Well, Donald Trump has been basically telling us exactly what he was going to do for the last five years. You know, he has never committed to a peaceful transfer of power. He's always said that if he doesn't win the election, it's not a legitimate election. He has told us over and over again that he fully intended as president to be Viktor Orban or Vladimir Putin or pick your strongman leader. The fact that everybody's shocked by it is frankly more shocking than that he's uh, taking the positions he is. Well, I guess I have seen Donald Trump a number of times take positions and then being able to turn on a dime and say, no, I never said that. I'm the opposite direction, you know. Well, he's never even denied those things, though, Mark. It's just like the problem is the media thinks, oh, that's just Trump. Well, no, that is Trump. (laughs) That is Trump. No, what I was thinking of was like the way that he would rag on North Korea, right? You know, Rocket Man, and he would taunt. And it sounds like there's no way he's he's just going to go start a nuclear war there. That's what I was afraid of coming up with his election. And then he turns out to be best buddies with Kim. Except he's not. He was being played by Kim. Kim no longer has any constraints on building nuclear weapons. He's made several. He's no longer has any constraints on building ICBMs. He's, he now has missiles that can reach the West Coast of the United States easily. And apparently this week announced that he's rolling out a nuclear warhead to go on Donald Trump's little game might have made a great stunt and gotten him some wonderful headlines, 
but it did not make the world a safer place. Well, I didn't think it was going to, but my point was simply that he maintained that he was completely opposed to North Korea. He's going to crush them under his heel. I don't know. And then he turns out like, no, no, he's my best buddy. I mean, he's able to flip positions like that, evidently with no sense of self or investment. Actually, before Trump was elected, I was working on election, trying to help Hillary Clinton win in that contest. I had put in my mind that there's about a 5% chance that if Trump was elected, we'll end up in tyranny, that there would not be another election. And there was a 3% chance, I just made these numbers up in my head, that there would be a nuclear war, that he, by his recklessness, would kick it off. You must have had your own thoughts coming up on his election. What were you thinking? How close did we come to oligarchy uh, actually turning into tyranny? I think that had the coronavirus not erupted and had Trump not responded to it in such a blindingly incompetent fashion, that he would have been reelected based largely on the economy. And that would have been the end of the American experiment, because in his second term, it would have been all gloves are off. He disemboweled most of our major regulatory agencies, including the IRS, which isn't even, you know, a function and put his toadies in. He took over Voice of America and turned it into a propaganda outlet. I mean, he was just step by step by step doing everything that if he wanted to be Putin when he grows up, or if he wanted to be Mohammed bin Salman when he grows up, or Erdogan or Orban, he was moving us in that direction. And there were you know, a number of people who were pointing this out, but by and large, they were not being listened to. So what you're saying is writing the hidden history of American oligarchy was easy. You just copied down what Donald Trump was doing. Well, yes and no. The Donald Trump part of that book is relatively small, actually. I I think that the threat of oligarchy that we face in this country and the extent to which we are already an oligarchy are things that are much larger than Trump and trends that are much longer than Trump. And with or without Trump, we're still heading in the wrong direction. My hope is that the Biden administration will make some serious uh, corrections to that course. We'll have to wait and see. But at the end of the book, I've got a, I don't recall how many, half a dozen to a dozen specific suggestions on what we can do to block oligarchy. Probably the most important are getting money out of politics and reducing the massive inequality, economic inequality in the United States. Those are the two principal drivers of our oligarchy problem right now. Last time I talked to you, we were talking about monopolies, which are a part or related to sometimes oligarchy. Could you explain for our listeners for Spirit in Action what oligarchy is? I think it's a little known, little used term. Yeah, generally speaking, in the United States, a monopoly is when economic power is concentrated in a small number of hands. An oligarchy is when political power is concentrated in a small number of hands. And typically, those hands in which it's concentrated are people of great wealth, thus oligarchs. We don't tend to think of the United States as an oligarchy, even though, as you point out in the book, there are two periods where we were very close to that tipping further into tyranny, just as this third time has come very close to that, too. We think of oligarchies as being elsewhere. What are the best international symbols you think of what an oligarchy turned tyranny is that we've seen in our lifetime? 
Well, in its purest form, I think if you looked at the Middle Eastern potentates, you know, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia or the various rulers of the UAE or Kuwait or some of those other countries in that region that are not democratic countries where you've got hereditary rulers, that's, you know, oligarchy is, is kind of a variation on ancient kings. It just typically has a patina of pretend democracy. I think that you could safely argue, and I think I make the case in the book, that America could be considered in the strictest sense right now an oligarchy, given that at least up until the last 10 years or so, the vast majority of the money that's spent on politics comes from a very, very limited number of sources, wealthy individuals and large corporations. Now, with the internet, we're seeing the rise of crowdfunding for political campaigns, at least for big, high-profile political campaigns, president, United States Senate. But it still is not helping at the local state level or even at the level of state representative most commonly. So I think that if we want to avoid rigidifying the oligarchy here in the United States, we've got to do something about campaign financing. The financing that happened for Bernie Sanders, particularly in this 2016 run for president or for the Democratic nomination for that, it was much touted. What was it, 27 or $47 average per donor? It was yeah. it was pretty impressive. And that somehow, has that actually balanced out the, I think it's up to billions, it's certainly close to billion, that's being poured in from conservative and right-wing sources? It might have at the level of direct contributions to candidates' campaigns, which are capped out at $2,800 per person per year, and there's some limits on corporate donations and things like that. The area where even Bernie, or for that matter, President Obama and his prodigious fundraising machines still can't compete is with the so-called dark money pools, the super PACs and political action committees. I mean, you know, people had vigorously raised funds for uh, Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff in the Georgia election, raised a mind-boggling amount of money. I mean, you know, $100 million. But in the last couple of weeks of the election, Mitch McConnell wrote a $50 million check out of his super PAC. And uh, somebody else, we don't know yet who, wrote another $25 million check. You know, in addition to all the money they've been raising from grassroots uh, Republicans around the country. So we're not there yet, and I doubt we'll ever get there. You've got people on the right. The majority of your billionaires in the United States are right-wing or libertarian, and for any of them, writing a check large enough to swing an election is chump change. Way back in 1974, I was in forensics, and I did extemp. Did you ever do forensics or debate? I mean, you're so well-spoken. Did you actually have training that way, or is this just a natural gift? I did debate in high school for one year. That's it. Actually, though, my father was a political activist, a Republican, and I debated him regularly for years. And he's very, he was very good at it. We used to sit and watch uh, Joe Pine together. We used to watch William F. Buckley's Firing Line show together. We would watch them debate. We would have our own debates. This is when I was like 12, you know. Well, the reason I was referring to being an extemporaneous speaking was because I had a little device I'd use. You know, you'd pick your topic and then half an hour later or something, you'd give a seven minute speech. And the topic I had drawn was about campaign financing. So I wrote a little poem, which at least represented my thinking. In 1974, this is, if I had a dollar for every white collar who'd stand up and holler for Nixon, it'd be more than a penny from the liberal many conclusion our finance needs fixing. (laughs) 
That's great. And I don't know if it's still true or if we've improved or just only gone downhill from there. What's your take on it? It's gotten a lot worse because during the Nixon 68 and 72 elections, among the wealthy in the United States and among the business class, getting involved in politics was considered something you just didn't do. People got their fingers burned very badly in the last years of the 1920s and throughout the 30s. And FDR fought back ferociously against wealthy individuals and companies that were trying to sabotage the New Deal, saying things like, they hate me and I welcome their hatred. I mean, calling them out frequently. It wasn't really until the mid-70s, after the Buckley decision in 76 and the Bellotti decision in 78, and the Powell memo getting widely circulated through the U.S. Chamber of Commerce post-1971, that great wealth started to again participate in politics like they had back in the 1920s. And they've taken us to where we were arguably at the 1920s, which is an economy that's doing great for the people on the top and screwing everybody else and a political system that's largely totally corrupted by great wealth. Not totally corrupted, but badly corrupted. Well, the topic that we're dealing with here today is the hidden history of American oligarchy. Tom Hartman is the author, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. You point out the periods in the past where we flirted with the step into fascism, into oligarchy firmly installed in government. I'm wondering if that step from oligarchy to fascism where you actually shut down the democratic process. Is that a foregone conclusion? Is there no easy, steady state oligarchy that, you know, things are kind of pulled from behind, but most of your freedoms and your control still exists? I think that if there is, we're at that right now, and it's not working very well. I would argue that the last 20 years, maybe even the last 30 years, have been kind of a steady state oligarchy. And the disruptor of that, just like, you know, the, the disruptor of oligarchy in the 1920s was the Great Depression. The disruptor of oligarchy in the South in the 1860s was the Civil War. The disruptor of the kind of steady state oligarchy we're experiencing right now is the combination of the coronavirus and the economic crash surrounding it. Those provide opportunities for course correction. And, you know, thank God Joe Biden got elected. He's not Bernie Sanders, but he's going to be moving America back toward the direction of democracy and away from oligarchy, from everything I can see. Let's talk about the historical examples. And that's one of the things, by the way, folks, that is it's super about any of the books and any of the commentary that you get from Tom Hartman. It's firmly embedded in real history. It's a critical look at our past and how we got to where we are. So, as you say in the book, Tom, we're in our third period of oligarchy with the ascension of oligarchical powers controlling almost our entire country. Destruction of the middle class, it's been happening over the last 30 to 40 years. The first period you describe is that leading up to the Civil War, the rise of the Southern oligarchy and slavery. The key point about that that I hadn't realized before, and you pull out all these quotes about people pointing out to this, was that the cotton gin was central in this. Blew my mind. Me too, when I learned it, which I, I didn't learn until I started doing the research for this book. 
And that was the prior to the 1820s, the South was filled with plantations, but somewhere as small as, you know, a, a single family on 100 acres with two or three enslaved people working that land and somewhere as large as thousands and thousands of acres with thousands of, of enslaved humans. And what happened was Eli Whitney, he actually invented it, I think in 1798 or thereabouts. But it didn't get into production until the, the 1810s and didn't get into really widespread use until the early 1820s. The problem is that a cotton, when you pick a bowl of cotton, it has the seeds all embedded all through it inside the cotton. And they're bound to the cotton fibers. And they're really hard to get those seeds out. So the cotton gin had this big round drum with screen around it. And then it had these little wires with little hooked ends that reached in and pulled the cotton out. And the seeds couldn't come through the mesh. So you would spin this thing and pull in. Anyhow, the point is that one machine could do the work of 50 enslaved humans. And so the large plantations were the only ones that could afford a machine because they were very expensive. Once they got the machine, they were 50 times more productive than their smaller competitors. And they just started wiping out the small plantations. And as the small plantations went bankrupt, they sold their land to the large plantations and very often became sharecroppers or simply sold their land and moved north or moved west. There was a lot of westward movement out of the south at that time. In fact, that's where a lot of your famous western criminals came from. Although most of them came from the South after the Civil War, you know, Billy the Kid and those guys, kind of guys. But that then led to this extraordinary explosion of wealth in a very small number of hands in the Deep South. They rose up and took over the governments of most of the Southern states. The South went then from, uh, you know, in a full-blown oligarchy, it had already been tyranny. The South had been a police state for 300 years. The slave patrols were the militias in the South. It's the principal reason why the Second Amendment was written the way it was, was to preserve the slave patrols, particularly in South Carolina, Georgia, and Virginia. So the outcome of this was this Southern oligarchy decided that they didn't even like having to bother with elections. They didn't like having to bother with anything that seemed democratic. They just wanted to run their oligarchy. And so they challenged the North. They started the Civil War. You know, we beat them and reimposed democracy on the southern states and broke up the big plantations. One of the largest was Robert E. Lee's big plantation uh, that is now known as Arlington National Cemetery. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea that was the history of it, huh? Yeah, we took it away. You know, we appropriated these plantations. Some of the largest prisons down in the south formerly were plantations as well and are still run as plantations to this day because the 13th Amendment, which everybody thinks abolished slavery, didn't actually abolish slavery. <laughs> Sent so it to our, prison. <laughs> yeah, it, it, no, it explicitly says that, you know, right. slavery, except for those convicted of a crime, shall be abolished, basically. I'm paraphrasing. but And so uh, if you're in prison, you literally can legally be enslaved. And so a lot of those plantations are still running in the South, but they're running as prisons. I guess part of the mechanism to get us there, I think the South didn't want to have to succeed from the Union, and the Fugitive Slave Act was an attempt to say, well, our rules apply in the North. We can go up there and reclaim our property. And when the North didn't uphold that, there are too many people who are being troublemakers, the Underground Railroad and all of that. That's when the South said, well, we'll forget it. Then we can't work with you if you won't play by our rules. We have to go our own way. 
you know, I've read stories like that as part of the lost cause mythology, but I think the two largest things that happened were the New York bankers, New York was all in on the South. The South was the economic engine of America at the time. There was more money being made and more money being spent, uh, more money coming out of the South as a result of cotton than any other industry in any other part of the United States. And in fact, New York City tried to secede from the Union along with the South. I didn't hear that. It's in the book. And I mean, you know, they were very serious about this, or at least I think it's in the book. I I wrote the book at about 45,000 words and then had to cut it down to 30,000. So there's some parts I had to take out and I don't remember what they are. I've memorized every word and I don't recall that. (laughs) Well, you know, it was that, that happened. What came out of this was that the New York banks had basically gotten into bed with the brokers and the shippers who were transporting this cotton overseas. And uh, the Southern plantation owners wanted, basically, they wanted control of New York. They wanted to take the New York banks, or at least they wanted to establish their own parallel banking system and commerce system, and presumably out of one of the Southern coastal cities. I mean, it was really, at the end of the day, it was really all about money from the oligarchs' point of view. They also saw a rising anti-slavery sentiment in the North. And, you know, the Missouri Compromise was kind of one of the things that really kicked this off to the extent that they felt the institution of slavery was doomed. They could not allow that to happen because they believed that slavery was absolutely essential to their economy. I want to ask you a little bit more about that, but something I forgot about that you mentioned, I think, in the book, the fact is sitting in my brain, so I think it came through you. We've dealt with oligarchy before, and England was an oligarchy in essence. It was a monarchy also. And you said the Boston Tea Party in in that act of terrorism, which those folks did, that they destroyed something like a million or more dollars worth of tea in today's dollars. And I was wondering where that figure came from. I had the thought that when people are talking about, well, look at they destroyed a building in Minneapolis, uh, so therefore terrorism, that's horrible. And I was just wondering, in comparative terms, how the Boston Tea Party, people said, well, they dumped some cases of tea into the water. Well, a million dollars, how did that get estimated? How do we, do we know how much a ship carried back in those days? I'm just curious how the million figure came from. Yeah, it's all a matter of public record. My recollection, and this is, it's probably been a year since I've read these numbers, so fact check me. But my recollection is that they destroyed and threw overboard 134 cases of tea that were worth about 7,800 British pounds, that if you adjust for inflation, that's a million dollars in today's dollars. Also keep in mind that the British response to this was the Boston Ports Act. The British passed a law that until the city of Boston paid back the British East India Company, that 7,900, 800 pounds, that million dollars, until they paid that back, and they quantified the amount specifically, that there would be no commerce going in or out of Boston. That happened in early 1774. And that led right to the Boston Massacre and Crispus Atticus, and then to the shots heard around the world and Concord and Lexington, and we were off to the races. And the Boston Tea Party was also a turning point for a lot of the politicians and thinkers of the day. Thomas Jefferson in 1771 or 72 had published a pamphlet titled A Summary View of the Rights of British Americans. And it was basically a how-to manual for how a colonist can be a good British citizen. 
after the British Tea Party, he basically tore that up and said, to hell with that. And of course, in 1776, authored the Declaration of Independence. I'm going back and thinking about this because essentially the people in the U.S. or on the North American continent were under the thumb of the oligarchy, the East India Company and all of that kind of thing, that was controlling the country. They threw off oligarchy. And I was wondering to what degree declaring independence from, succeeding from, is one of the techniques that people use to get rid of oligarchy over the ages. I think of that all the more because so many people have proposed that the way to get out from under the Trump national control was, you know, California and Oregon, Washington, go to Canada. And you you know what I'm saying? So essentially, that's a act of succession. Yeah, I don't think the secession, I'd have to think about that one. It's a new idea to me, too. I just, it came up to me while I was sitting here talking to you. And typically the way that oligarchies are overthrown is by revolution or by conquest. Either the country is is conquered by another oligarch, typically, with a bigger army. I mean, if you're looking at like the 500-year or 1,000-year scope of history, or the people within the oligarchy find the conditions of their life so oppressive that they rise up and, and overthrow it. So the cases like the Philippines, where at one point they got rid of their dictatorial tyranny, yeah, that peaceful revolution in that case, the overthrow of the USSR. I'm just trying to figure the cases where we've gotten rid of oligarchy and how it's actually happened in the broad swath of things. Yeah. Part of the problem with this, Mark, is that there aren't these clear definitions where you can say, okay, this is this and this is that. And, you know, and this one over here is something different. Rule by the rich takes a lot of different forms. And some of them are explicitly called out as oligarchy and others of them are called things like fascism or dictatorship or kingdom. When in the strictest definition, they at their foundation are oligarchies. And then on the basis of that rule by a small number of rich people, you know, who typically also control the economy as well as the or majority part of the economy, as well as the political system, then decide to engage in practices that are um, internally tyrannical or externally uh, going to war and trying to become empire-like behavior. What would we say of the USSR? Certainly, there was a central party that had control. They're not the rich people in our usual sense. No, and I'm not sure that you could characterize the Soviet Union as an oligarchy, although it did have a ruling class that got quite rigidified by the middle of Stalin's rule. That would be a question to put to a, to a Russia scholar. I'm, I'm not that. Or familiar. maybe it's your next book. That's what I want to know. So. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my next book is The Hidden History of American Healthcare. I just sent it off to the editor. Well, I'll look forward to talking to you about that a few months down the road, but we're staying with The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Your Democracy from the Ruling Class by Tom Hartman. Track him down whenever you want. I mean, there's so many ways. I really don't know how you do it, Tom. Your three-hour program that you do each day that goes out to so many sources. You're one of the top 10 talk show hosts of the entire nation, only two of whom are on the liberal side of things. And so you are a unique personage in our landscape here. And one of the questions I had for you right away was, you're a successful businessman. 
Uh, when I talked to you last, you talked about the company that you started up. You had one capitalist co-invest with you. And certainly after several years, you've got millions of dollars worth of value there, right? And then you pulled out and went to something else. You've done every job on the planet at this point, I think. You could have been part of, I think, the monopoly, the oligarchy, the ruling, cl- the rich ruling class. And I'm wondering why you didn't. Is it just you don't like money that much or what? You know, I've made a lot of money over the years, and I've spent a lot of money over the years. When Louise and I got married, we decided that we were going to take our retirement before we got too old to enjoy it. So what we've done over the last 50 years is we'll start a business, build it up, sell it off, take enough money to live on for a year or two, and then live for a year or two. And we lived in Europe for a year. We've, I mean, basically just take a year or two off and burn through that money and then start another business and start all over again. I think if I'd accumulated it over the years, I could be fairly wealthy. But as it is, I'm just fairly upper middle class, I suppose. But we've had a wonderful life. I mean, we've lived and worked all over the planet and our kids have had that experience and we were able to put our kids through college, thank God. It's just a matter of how you decided to live your life, you know. And so what I'm actually aiming at is what are your priorities? There's some people like the Koch brothers or Sheldon who just died, right? Clearly, their priority was in piling up invisible numbers of dollars that are held somewhere. You can't ever use it. You can't really do anything with it except maybe say my pile's bigger than your pile. So the values that they were attaching to both power and wealth must be significantly higher than it is to you. So what are your top priorities? Being present, living right here now, being there for my family and friends, accomplishing what I can in a way that will have a net positive impact on the world. I really like the idea of tikkun, you know, that that we are all obligated, uh, that's not quite the right word, but by virtue of the fact that we've been given life to make not just our lives better, but the lives of all other human beings better. Each one of us has an individual responsibility to save the world. I have felt that way since. And frankly, I was inspired to feel that way by my father and my mother, but particularly my father's political activism. Yes, he was a Republican, but you know, this was in the 1960s. Um, (laughs) Eisenhower Republican. Eisenhower in 56 ran for re-election on a platform of having expanded Social Security and union membership, you'll recall. And it's why he, right straight out of high school, volunteered for the Army so he could go fight in World War II, fight fascists. So, I, I, you know, I probably got some of that from him. But those are the things that are important to me. Piling up money has never been important to me. And, you know, thank God I've been able to earn it or I, I would have been broke <laughs> over and over again. Well, I ask you that because it's also a question of what drives the world. And I think when we look for a solution, how do we prevent oligarchy from taking over the United States or further in the world? Why do we support democracy over other forms? It has something to do with tikkun olam or it has something to do with our worldview and what is a good thing to do in the world. And there's a a little story you share in the book about, I think he was German. He was being questioned by one of American newsmen. And it's like, you're riches. Why do you pay these high taxes? Could you relay that story again? Yeah, I I was uh, on the road and I don't recall where I was, but I was up late one night watching TV because I couldn't sleep. And I tuned into Bloomberg, as I recall. My recollection is that the conversation was coming out of Singapore, but I could be wrong. But this American reporter was interviewing a German businessman. 
and it was at some big business conference that was going on. This young American reporter says to this uh, German businessman, uh, what income tax rate do you pay? And the guy said, oh, I think it's around 53, 54% on the top part of my income. And the American reporter was like, whoa, that's, I, how could anybody, I, I, I can't imagine, I, you know, how could you do that? And the guy said, well, you know, it's, it's, I, I can get along. And he kind of brushed it off, you know. And so then they talk about the stock market or something. And then they come back around and this reporter is like, you know, he's still just, he can't get this out of his head. You know? <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, what, how, how do you deal with paying all these taxes? And, you know, don't, don't you get upset? And, and the guy like, no, it's, it's fine. You know, and you know, let's go back to talking about the stock market or whatever it was they were talking about. And finally, a third time, the reporter asks him, and the third time that the reporter asks him, aren't you outraged about all the taxes you pay? The businessman pauses for a long beat, then looks at, the, at this kid and says, I don't mind paying my fair share of taxes because I don't want to be a rich man in a poor country. Wham. Yes. And you could see this kid, you know, just like going, oh, never thought of that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And that moment just stayed with me so long. I've repeated the story on the air a number of times, and I wrote it into the book. There's a lot of short-sightedness that goes into the economic policies, the one that champions what percentage growth you have this quarter and ignores the fact what's going to happen later. For instance, the depression that ended the second period of oligarchy in the United States today is generally just known as the Great Depression. But it was the Republican Great Depression, right? Well, that's what people called it until the 1940s. <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, and some people even called it that into the 1950s. But that was the widespread reference. Actually, it didn't even get started. They didn't even really start seriously calling it the Depression and, until the, the mid-30s, I guess, the early, maybe the early 30s. They would refer to it as the, as the troubles or the time of difficulty. So the first period of oligarchy that we had within the government of the United States, you refer to as the period leading up to the Civil War. The Civil War ended that because the oligarchs lost the war, the ones on the part of the South. I am sure that there are a number of rich people on the part of the North as well. And you mentioned already New York, and there are people whose own complicity in the rule of the oligarchs in the South. The second period, which happens after the Civil War, the power central rises up, you know, Standard Oil and everyone else, Carnegie and the others become extremely rich and they start being able to buy their politicians. And that continues on pretty well in going into the 20s. And then 29, the stock market crashes and everything starts collapsing. That evidently was able to get rid of that. But I thought one of the key factors in that reversal is one of the oligarchy, one of the rich people turned traitor and became president of the United States. And he knew enough about the oligarchy from the inside to turn the tricks on them. How key was that part of it? Well, both Franklin Roosevelt and his uh, third cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, were referred to as traitors to their class. Teddy Roosevelt pushed through the inheritance tax, (laughs) the estate (laughs) tax, for God's sake. And Franklin Roosevelt pushed through the entire New Deal and raised the top income tax rate up to 91%. In both cases, the Roosevelt family did good by our country, (laughs) in my opinion, both as a Republican and as a Democrat. 
I want to remind folks you are listening to Spirit in Action. We've got Tom Hartman with us today. Just do a search of Tom Hartman, and Tom is T-H-O-M. Hartman has two N's if you do a search that, or just follow the link from NordenSpiritRadio.org, where we have everybody linked from our past 15 years of doing this program. How long have you been doing the Hartman Report? Since 2003. So a couple years longer than I am. No wonder you're more prominent than I am. But on my site, you'll find links to all of our guests of these past 15 years, and you'll find the stations that are carrying us. How many stations currently carry you? I mean, you've got Sirius XM Radio, and you've got everyone else. Do you have any idea of the count exactly? Do you have someone else to count for you? I don't. Our webmaster keeps the list on our webpage current, although I can't say that it's 100% accurate right now. I haven't frankly, looked at that in years. Another one of the greats in the U.S. in terms of the liberal or left-wing broadcasting is Amy Goodman and the Democracy Now! broadcast. Do you know if you're ahead or she's ahead in terms of listeners? I don't know. It probably isn't what's key to you after all. (laughs) I'm internally competitive, Mark. I am constantly trying to beat myself to do better, to get better. But externally, I'm not particularly competitive. Our program was the number one progressive show in America. It has been since, I think, since I took over for Al Franken. I think that was the point where when I got on the Air America platform, the the show just kind of doubled in size, which was a long time ago. It was like 2005 or something like that. And I never referred to it as that until the last year or so. And only then, because it seemed to just add some credibility to what we're doing, I'm If I was just on a local radio station, I'd be working just as hard. Well, the reason I'm talking about this is because Northern Spirit Radio, we're we're trying to reach out and influence people too. It's an internal competition. It's not that I have to beat someone else. It's because I want to make a positive difference in the world. And our mission of Northern Spirit Radio is to promote educational, inspirational voices that are working for peace and social justice. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to raise up the good and enable other people's voices so that we can make this world better, so that we can make our country better, so we can make each individual city. And it's really important to us that we reach out to the local people as well. So please support Northern Spirit Radio, support your local community radio station, support all of the media, which gives us an option. So we're not so controlled by the media, which is owned by the oligarchs. And you talk about this fair amount, Tom, in Hidden History of American Oligarchy. One of the things that amazed me, I had never heard before, is the number of stations, the oligarchs who turned you down because they're going to cater specifically to the conservative media, to the Rush Limbaugh's and so on. And you said, well, why don't you carry our station? And they say, no, we own it now. We're not going to put stuff on that goes against our interests. Talk a little bit about your experience with that. I met once with the president of a radio network that had some eight or 900 stations and said, you know, would you put progressive talk radio on some of your stations? And he said, no, I'm not going to put anybody on the air who wants to raise my taxes. I had lunch with a senior executive from another network at a talker's radio convention, the annual talk radio convention in New York City, and just sat next to him by serendipity at the afternoon lunch and suggested he should pick up at least one progressive show since he had a full-time 24-7 lineup of right-wingers. And he was like, oh, you know, we're owned by a Bible publishing company. Uh, We only carry Christians or Christian-friendly programming, and liberals are not Christian-friendly. We're only doing what Jesus said instead of just promoting the word. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I was kind of offended by it, but, you know, life goes on. He was otherwise a very nice guy. 
But control of the media is so central to oligarchy and control of the mind of the people. This is not an accidental thing that the conservatives control as much of the media as they do. This was a deliberate process that comes from Paul Memelon forward. One of the crucial steps in taking control is you have to control the media. Yes, it's a whole lot easier to control the media by deregulating it in such a way that a small number of very wealthy people can acquire it when those wealthy people are on your side than it is to have government take it over. You know, this is a process that we've seen happen in the United States since 1996 when Clinton signed the Telecommunications Act, which did away with many of the ownership rules, although Reagan started the process very aggressively. You know, it's the same thing in Hungary. I, I, you know, I, mean, I use Hungary. There's a chapter about Hungary and Viktor Orban in the book, because I think he's kind of the prototypical modern version of an oligarchic takeover of a country. And what Orban did was use licensing laws in Hungary to basically say his buddies could buy these radio stations and television stations on the cheap, because if his opponents tried to buy them, he would basically regulate them out of existence. You know, it's a, it's a very corrupt bargain. We haven't gotten that far here, but we haven't had to. But we may be heading that way. I really found the story that you told about Hungary very interesting. In particular, what you need to do is demonize some enemy that you can rouse national fears and anger against. In particular, you don't want those people coming in from Syria. So his solution was to build a wall. Yeah, uh, Viktor Orban built a, uh, he campaigned on it when he ran, that he was going to build a wall on the southern border of Hungary to keep out the uh, refugees who were coming from Syria. And he kept his campaign promise. And obviously, we saw that same campaign happening here in the United States, build the wall chanting and all of that kind of thing. So is there any direct line that we know of from Hungary to Donald Trump's policy? I think that Orban and Trump were just using the same playbook, and it's a well-worn path. You know, you pull together your oligarchs, you achieve a consensus among the ruling class that democracy is really just too messy. You stack the courts with right-wing toadies who are fans of oligarchy, who believe that democracy is dangerous or whatever. And then you've got your government regulatory agencies to any change your tax code. I mean, everything's designed to enhance the power and strength of the oligarchs and diminish the power and strength of the working class, who are basically the only people who would traditionally challenge the oligarchs. And that's key because you say it's the middle class that has to work against them. I guess the time of the Magna Carta, too, it was the merchants who were... I guess, say, moderating some of the power of the king of the ruling class, right? The, yeah. And so you've got someone who's leveraged, who's got enough money, resources, time, forces to moderate the control at the top. And the Magna Carta did, you know, I mean, we, we point back to the Magna Carta as this great moment, but the Magna Carta did not confer rights on average people. It only conferred rights on property owners, you know, on the wealthy. Yes, and so it's really important to involve the middle class. But the middle class has been shrinking as we've got greater and greater inequality now. I don't know exactly what the numbers are. Do you have a sense of how much the middle class has been shrunken so that there's less power against the oligarchs? In 2010, for the first time since the mid-1950s, fewer than half of Americans could call themselves middle class. And by 10 years later, by last year, we had reached the point where uh, fully 70% of Americans 
would be wiped out by a $5,000 unexpected expense. Uh, More than half of Americans would be wiped out by a $1,000 unexpected expense. And they're coming fast and hard right now with, you know, with the uh, coronavirus throwing people out of work. And I think the average now rent or uh, mortgage payment that's owed by American families is uh, a little over $6,000. And, uh, you know, how far in arrears they are and credit card bills are going up and the credit card companies are loving that because they're making 30% on that money, uh, which is just insane. You can't even make 1% on your money anywhere else. So the banksters are doing good. Everybody else, not so much. We're talking with Tom Hartman today for Spirit in Action. His latest book is The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, and there's some more than 30 books that he's got there already. This one's about reclaiming our democracy from the ruling class, and I'm so pleased to have him here again. We're trying to touch on some of the high points of the book, but folks, it's only 150 pages, and if you have time to watch a couple TV shows, you've got time to read this book, and this book will enrich your life a great deal more than watching a couple TV shows, even if they're really good ones. I'm getting the idea that you probably don't binge watch a lot of Netflix, do you, Tom? Yeah, we do. <laughs> you do? What do you watch? Oh, we've watched a whole bunch of different series. Uh, I think right now, uh, Louise and I are watching old season two Cagney and Lacey's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we went through all the, all the shows that we grew up on, you know, Mary Tyler Moore and Bob Newhart and, and some of the old Columbo and stuff like that. And, and then, you know, some of the modern ones too. We watched The Crown. We watched, what was the one about uh, Kings and Kingdoms? Damn, I'm forgetting the title of it. It was a big deal. Anyway, yeah. What we do is basically we start our day at five o'clock in the morning and because our show goes on the air at nine. And so from five to nine, I write an op-ed that we publish at tomhartman.medium.com. Then that op-ed becomes the basis for the rant for my first hour of my program. And we put the show together during that time. And then from nine to noon, I'm on the air. And then, you know, at noon we have lunch. And then from 1230 until five, that's my writing time every day. From five to seven, we watch the news, news from five to six, and then six to seven, watch Rachel Maddow's show. And then from seven until around eight or eight thirty, nine o'clock, we just go stupid and watch TV. It's it's a way of just <laughs> and then we go to bed around eight or eight thirty and nine o'clock and get up the next morning and start again. That's that's our weekdays. We also take a 30, 40 minutes out of there and try to walk two miles every day. But it used to be before the pandemic, you know, we'd go out to restaurants for lunch and stuff like haven't done any of that. So it's gotten very regimented. It's it's actually helped my productivity tremendously. <laughs> Well, and I think it makes a big difference for the world. You pour out such insight and research, fact-based. It's not just opinions. There was one opinion you expressed in The Hidden History of American Oligarchy. It wasn't like anything like a definitive statement. But as you alluded to earlier in this conversation, Tom, the fact that the coronavirus hit and has decimated our country and from the point of view of not only 350, 400,000 deaths, but the economic impact has been severe. So what you said, what you alluded to in the book, and again, this was before the election that you wrote this book, was that maybe the coronavirus, that the, having this pandemic was our saving grace, that it has kept us from teetering into tyranny. I think so. As I said, you know, when we started this conversation, I think that had it not been for the coronavirus, it would have been the end of the American experiment because Trump would have gotten reelected. Joe Biden was a very weak candidate. 
the question I had was, why didn't that work back in 1918? Because I think it's arguable that the effect of what was called the Spanish influenza, which was actually from Kansas, right? The Kansas influenza, it certainly killed more than 600,000, I think, Americans. And we were a much smaller nation at that point. It shut down entire cities. I mean, I remember, I know Milwaukee, much of Wisconsin was leading in terms of how to respond correctly to such a pandemic. Why didn't it shut down the United States in the same way and get rid of our Republican oligarchy? Well, 1918 was not a presidential election year. That was 1920. And the preceding one was 1916. So it didn't have, and and first of all, let me put this caveat on here. I'm not a scholar of that point in American history. That period from 1900 to 1920 is not something that I've spent a lot of time learning about. But in that 1920 election, there clearly was a call for change. And I think that probably the flu pandemic, which was now a year in the rearview mirror, had something to do with that. Because Warren Harding campaigned on a pretty radical platform. His two campaign slogans were a return to normalcy, which meant, and everybody understood it meant, reduce the top income tax bracket from 91% down to something much, much lower for rich people. And he, in fact, lowered it down all the way down to 25% when he became president in 1921. And uh, more business in government, less government in business was his second slogan which literally meant privatize, deregulate, which he did. And that's one of the things that kicked off the Roaring Twenties. There was a major political upheaval, a major political shift, and that was largely the end of progressive Republicans. I mean, you still, even into the 60s and 70s, had people like Bob Packwood who were Republicans and kind of had, you know, at least environmental views and things. But the Teddy Roosevelt progressive Republican after that election of 1920. So it was a political turning point for the United States. One of the key issues that a lot of people, I guess there's at least a little bit of dissension about, but that we do not have a functioning democracy currently in the United States. As of the 2014 study, which was looking at data back to the 1980s and so on, came out of Princeton, Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page of Northwestern were the two key authors of the study. They concluded that there was basically no correlation between what the common people wanted and what actually Congress, what legislature, what government actually did. Whereas if you looked at the correlation between the top 10% of people, the richest people, that there was a very clear correlation. So I went reading up on that just yesterday, and I found out there was some dissension about the significance of that study, that in fact, it was only a slight difference within the error of margin about those correlations, which one it was related to. What's your take on that? I, I certainly leapt on it and said, yeah, we, our democracy has been already bought off. We've legalized buying government officials. You already referred to those Supreme Court decisions about that. It's now legal to bribe by your politicians. They control the media. There's not much more before they can take over and declare full 100% tyranny. So your take on how close we are to oligarchy, democracy, what's your view on that? 
I think Gillens and Page were right. Whenever any of those kinds of studies come out, the Koch network and some of your other billionaire networks, the Coors and the Scape Foundation and things like that, have literally funded what they call policy groups or policy study groups. Uh, you might call them think tanks in every single state. And of course, at the national level with like Heritage and Cato and a whole bunch of them you never even heard about, a competitive enterprise institute and stuff like that. So whenever something comes out indicating that the oligarchs have overstepped, they fund some, frankly, BS research that purports to rebut it. And typically with lots and lots of technical language that completely befuddles anybody who's not an economist. And because they own so many media outlets and so many websites and have so many voices, uh, they're successful in getting to the point where when you Google something like that, the top 20 things that come up are all those right-wing sites. Whether you're talking trade policy, whether you're talking tax policy, pick your topic. If the oligarchs have an interest in it, that's the dynamic that you're going to discover. And you'll even see this over on Wikipedia. So if you look at the research that Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett did at the Equality Trust in the United Kingdom, and they wrote several books about this, Why Inequality Matters and the Spirit Level, and there's another one that's got the word level in it, they have nailed this. There's an absolute correlation between inequality and a whole spectrum of social ills, not just the failure of a political system. But as inequality increases, you see increases in teenage pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases. You see increases in suicides and homicides. You see increases in general crime. And this isn't if poverty increased. I'm not talking about poverty. I'm talking about, you know, if the middle class just remained where it was and the rich just got richer and richer and richer, that's inequality too. And as inequality increases, you see all these things, drug abuse goes up, social cohesion goes down, political engagement goes down, political systems become more and more highly dysfunctional. All of these things are the consequences of massive levels of inequality, which is what oligarchy inevitably brings you. It's almost the definition of oligarchy. So anybody who's challenging the Gillens and Page study, I would look very carefully who's funding their work. Yeah, follow the money. It's very key. Especially when they're talking about money. <laughs> and in a country like ours, where the wealth has been more and more concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, following the money is going to lead you to a very few individuals who've got that kind of control. I think we probably need to get off in just a moment. Let me just conclude with a couple comments. Number one, Everybody should be reading The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class by Tom Hartman, who's been here today for Spirit in Action. It's one of 30-plus books Tom's written. You can listen to him three hours each weekday, and I think you should, because if you do, I think our country's going to be better for it. I think you're going to be better for it, but I think our country specifically. And so if we want to help things move forward, you want to do this kind of study. We haven't finished talking about all oligarchy, Tom, but if people read the book, they'll get on the right track. Your next book again is about? The Hidden History of American Healthcare. It'll be out late this summer. We'll be talking to Tom again once that comes out, but you should go to TomHartman.com and track him down, find out everything he's doing, listen to him daily, and help make the world a better place. And thank you for doing that work. Clearly, your priorities are in the right place, and I'm thankful that they are. Thanks for joining me, Tom. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. And again, folks, NordenSpiritRadio.org. We have two previous times we've spoken with Tom, and you can listen to him daily in any case. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action.
The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel the echo of our healing.